Welcome back, everyone, for another Sunday in a season in the minors. If you haven't met me, my name is Caleb. I'm the pastor here at Cross of Life. The minor prophets are sometimes called the Book of the Twelve. They are 12 shorter books in the Old Testament that are um, very, I guess, historically contextual. And so we've been working our way through these books, trying to understand the historical context and also the application for ourselves. Uh, But if you've been with us through this entire series, you've seen that the application to us very often is pretty similar. In every single book, we have been confronted with our sin, maybe even a little bit in an uncomfortable way, but then have also seen the amazing grace of God. And theologians have a term for this type of preaching, this type of message. They call it law and gospel. Maybe you've heard those terms before, law and gospel. More than one commentator that I've read on the minor prophets has said that Martin Luther, the beginner, the starter of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century and the man for whom our church is named after, uh, found his understanding of law and gospel from reading the minor prophets. It's a pretty cool thing. Now, whole books have been written about the concept of law and gospel, but I'll try to distill it for you in just a couple sentences. The law is essentially God's demands on us. Here's what you ought to do. You may think 10 commandments or think Jesus saying, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Those commands that we never keep. And we might sort of keep them sometimes, but often with selfish motives. And while we're doing it, we probably break another two or three of the commandments along the way. The law are God's demands that show us how sinful we are. The gospel is the message of God's grace. That despite the fact that you and I are steeped in sin, Jesus Christ has died for our sins, taking all of that sin off of our record and giving us in its place his righteousness, his perfection for us. We do not earn it. We do not deserve it. We do not ask for it. It is just freely given to us by God's grace. Law and gospel. And you should hear law and gospel in every sermon. You should hear the message that, well, Luther put very well in his 1518 Heidelberg Disputation, the law which says, do this, and it's never done. You should also hear the gospel, which says, believe this, and everything is done already. So why do I make a big deal of this? Well, in some ways, this preaching is unique. You would not find this preaching in every church that you would go to. In fact, in many churches, you would find a message that is essentially, here are some ways that your life can get better. Here are some tips for being a better spouse, a better parent, a better citizen. Here are some ways that you can become a better person in the world. That's not law and gospel. You might even get a message that proclaims to be gospel, but the gospel is essentially Christ has gotten it started for you. Now you have to finish it. That's not gospel either. And so we have a beautiful thing when we hear law and gospel. And in fact, if you hear any preaching that isn't law and gospel, it's not preaching. But I also bring it up because in Micah, the law and the gospel are on full display. There are three movements to the book of Micah, and they are all started with the word hear or listen. It's translated either hear or listen in English, but it's the same word, shema, in Hebrew. In verse, chapter 1, verse 2, he starts with, hear you peoples. Then in chapter 3, he says, listen, you leaders. And in chapter 6, he says, listen to what the Lord says. And each of those movements is going to do this. It's going to proclaim law to you, and then it's going to finish with gospel. 
We have three movements of this. It's going to train us. It's going to exercise those law and gospel muscles for us. And those three movements can be outlined this way. In the first movement, God talks about what is happening to the nation. In the second movement, he talks about who is responsible. And then in the third movement, he talks about what is going to happen as a result. So that's where we're going, those three portions. First, what is happening? When we read the book of Amos a couple weeks ago, you remember that Amos made a big deal about the behavior of the nation being connected to the worship life of the nation. And we focused primarily on the worship life of the nation. Um, we're going to focus a little bit more on the behavior this time, but Micah brings up this same theme, this same motif. He starts by saying the problem, what is happening, is a messed up worship life. So in the first couple of verses, he says, here's the destruction that's going to come on you, and here's the reason. All of this is because of Jacob's transgression, Jacob being the name for the northern king of Israel, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? And what is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? When he says this, he talks about Samaria and the northern kingdom. Samaria would have been the capital of the northern kingdom. And in that place, the kings of the northern kingdom brought false worship of false gods into the practice of the people. So he kind of goes to the source and says, from that place, that's where the false worship comes. And then when he says about Jerusalem's or Judah's high place being Jerusalem, a high place was kind of a shorthand for a place where false worship was happening. And so he's saying... The place where you're supposed to be worshiping the true God, is that not the place where you're actually worshiping the false gods? Here's the problem. Your worship life is messed up. And he says that leads to all sorts of problems. He lists them all in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes and rob them of their inheritance. So first, it seems there were some people who were in positions of power who were using that power to take advantage of people underneath them. Second, he says, Lately my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. He says, in the same way, an army comes and conquers a land, and as they leave the land, they plunder it and take whatever they want. So are all the people of my nation treating each other like enemies, like people they've conquered, where they just take things from each other or try to extract things from each other. Uh, the rich robe would have been an outer garment, something that would have been easily accessible. I'll just take from you because it's right there and you're my enemy anyways. Next verse says, you drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes Take away my blessing from their children forever. This was affecting people who could not fight back in their culture. In their culture, women did not have the opportunities that they have in our culture. And so God was not okay with them being taken advantage of, and especially with the results that came down on their children. People who were supposed to be living and working for the sake of people who could not provide or protect themselves were hurting those people, and they were seeing the results. And then finally, he says... If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the prophet for this people. Essentially, he says, if there was a religion where like the way you practiced your religion was drinking a whole bunch of wine and beer, that would be the perfect religion for you guys. So where are we left? What is happening? People deceiving each other to extract value from each other. All people treating each other like enemies. The strong taking advantage of the weak. 
and people just entertaining their problems away. Sound familiar? Could this be said about our nation, our society? That people are looking for any way to extract value from each other? Look at most relationships in terms of what does it do for me? I'll only be friends with you if you make me feel good or, or give me something. See, my marriage relationship is only healthy as long as my wife or my husband is doing what I need. I only see my children as good when they are obeying what I say. See, every transaction or interaction between people over money or over property or assets as trying to find the best way to get as much for myself as I possibly can. What about treating each other like enemies? Do we look at the other people that we walk past in the grocery store or on the street and wonder about them? Wonder what they believe? Wonder who they're voting for? Wonder if they have our best interests in mind? Do we look at other people and first worry what they're going to think about us, that they might attack us for who we are, what we say, or the way we look? Do the strong take advantage of the weak? If you're a position of authority, do you look at the people underneath you as people who are supposed to listen to you or people you are supposed to serve? Do you look at them as a chance to be Christ's hands and feet to? Or do you look at them as an opportunity to do what you want and not really be held accountable for it? Do we entertain away our problems? When things are bad, when things are tough, rather than dealing with those things, do we just go hide behind our phone screen or our TV or a couple of drinks? I think many of these things could be said about our nation as well. It could be said about us. Why does this happen? Why is a place that is as affluent and successful as we are and that has access to God's word like we do, why does this happen? Why don't we act more Christian? Well, the book of Micah and the book of Amos and really the rest of the Bible give you one resounding answer. You don't believe the gospel. You don't believe the gospel. It maybe is no more clearly said in 1 Corinthians 15 when the Apostle Paul said, what I received, I passed on to you, as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Understand the context into which Paul writes this. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, for 14 chapters, he's dealt with all sorts of problems, everything from adultery to suing each other over things in front of people who are not believers, following different pastors because I like this guy's preaching style or that guy's way of being he corrects all these things, and then he says, the root of all of these problems is you do not see this as of first importance. All those problems. In fact, I would say that every problem in your life and every problem in society out there is inversely proportional to whether you believe the gospel. In other words, as you grow in understanding and believing the gospel, those problems diminish. Sound like a strong statement? Let me see if I can help you. Why are so many of us angry? Why are we angry at our parents? Why are we angry at our spouse? Why are we angry at society? 
Why are we angry at politics? Why are we angry at the people who have done things to us? Why are we so angry? You may not even consider yourself an angry person, but you know that sometimes you fall into that seething feeling that everything is unjust. Why does that happen? I would submit to you it's because we don't believe the gospel. The gospel, which says that at the end of time, God is going to right every wrong, make all injustice just again, and undo the things that have happened to his people. If we believe that that is coming, then the things that happen to us here, they're just blips on the radar. Why are so many of us anxious or worried? Is it not because at some level we believe we're going to lose something? We're going to lose health? We're going to lose our life? We're going to lose a loved one? We're going to lose security? We're going to lose happiness? We're going to lose our lifestyle? Why do we worry about those things? Let's submit to you because we don't believe the gospel. We don't believe that the gospel provides us not only with everything we need in this life, but God's promise that in the life to come, we will receive tenfold anything that we have lost here. Why are so many of us struggling with feelings of guilt and shame? Looking back on our life and saying, I can't believe I did that. Or I can't believe I didn't do that. Why is it that we walk into conversations and worry what people are going to think of us? I would submit to you it's because we don't believe the gospel. The gospel which says you are already acknowledged and loved and treasured by the only person who actually matters in all of the universe. And that when he says you are righteous in, in his eyes because of Jesus, no one can take that away from you. As Paul would say in Romans, there is no condemnation from anyone ever, anywhere, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I could give you 10 more examples, but you get my point? The reason that we have these struggles, these, these problems, this need to extract value from each other, this need to see everyone else as an enemy is because at our root, we don't really believe the gospel. Now, I need to be clear. Not really believing the gospel doesn't mean you don't believe the gospel. And even a small bit of faith in the gospel will save you eternally. What I'm saying is on the ground, as it plays out in your everyday life, is this of first importance to you? To the extent to which it is, it will fix those problems. But you know your heart. I know mine. I see society out there and I know it's not happening. And it seems like every week, despite the fact that I would love to believe the gospel even more every day, I struggle to do that. So what's the answer? Well, Micah gives it to you. He says at the end of chapter 2, I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring, you together, bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. And the one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. The king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. What he says is the answer is one day I am going to bring all people together like a shepherd brings together sheep. Sheep by themselves, bad news. They get into all sorts of trouble. And a shepherd who is constantly running around trying to pick up the sheep, that's hard work. But a shepherd who can keep his sheep together not only protects them but provides for them. And when sheep are together, they understand themselves as a flock and operate the way they were built to operate. 
God says the reason that all of these things are happening is because we think to ourselves, I have to be enough. I have to do it. I have to pull it off. I have to extract value for myself because otherwise I'm not valuable. I'm not significant. No one will notice me. God says, no, the answer is I am going to gather you and take care of all of it for you. I'm going to provide a straight way for you to go through a gate that will lead you out to a green pasture where all is provided for you. And about 750 years later, a man stood on the earth and said, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. And that man was Jesus Christ, who said that by his death, by his resurrection, by him providing all the value you've ever needed, you no longer have to live a life of trying to get for yourself, but know that it has already all been given to you. You have passed through that gate, through your baptism, through the, the preached, preached word, and through receiving his body and blood through the sacrament. So, what is happening? Life is falling apart. But the answer that God gives us is that he, by his gospel, the message of Jesus Christ crucified, is gathering us together. And to the extent to which we believe that, we will find the peace that he has already offered to us, that he has already given to us. So that's what's happening. Let's find out who's responsible. The beginning of chapter 3, he says, then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot, then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time, he will hide his face from them because of the evil they have done. So first, he specifically calls out the leaders of Jacob, the leaders of Israel, and says that they are treating the people under their care in such a way that he uses the metaphor of cannibalism to describe it. Obviously, bad treatment happening here. The leaders would have been both political and church leaders at the time. And God says, the way that you treat people, I'm going to hold you accountable for that. There's going to be a time when, well, you're going to cry out to the Lord and he will not answer you. Now, we have to be a little bit careful here because Israel was a theocracy and it was God's chosen nation, different from our nation or really any nation on earth right now. But there are some things that we can apply. We can understand that God holds leaders to a high standard. And if they do not live up to his standard, he is going to hold them accountable. He's going to bring punishment on them. Now, I think it's easy to start thinking about leaders and then think about people in high-profile positions of leadership. Maybe to think of people who are at the head of state or maybe who might be soon. But remember God's definition of leadership, his definition of authority. It's not just at the highest levels of government. It's at every level of government. And it's also in the church, not just in our elected leaders, but in the men of the congregation who lead the congregation and the women of the congregation who lead the children of the congregation. He set up this system of authority. And it even goes down to your family, where the husband is called to be the leader of his house for the sake of his wife and the sake of his children. How are we doing at that? Most of us are in some position of leadership, whether we're a parent, whether we're a church leader, whether we operate a position in a nonprofit, or maybe we're a manager at our work. 
There's somebody who looks up to us and God says, I'm going to hold you accountable for how you treat those people under authority. So of course, that should be a challenge to us. The law that convicts our hearts that in the positions that we have had in authority, we have not always lived up to God's standard for them. But it can also be a comfort, right? As we look at a world that's full of corrupt leaders in all different stations of life, we can know that God is going to hold them accountable. That's what he says. But that's not the only group of people he holds accountable. In the next verse, he says, this is what the Lord says, as for the prophets who lead my people astray. They proclaim peace if they have something to eat, but prepare prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. Therefore, night will come over you without visions and darkness without divination. The sun will set, will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them. So the second group of people he calls out are prophets. Most basically, a prophet would be somebody who claims to speak for God. And obviously, these prophets in this situation were false prophets who were having people come to them, asking them, what does God say? And if they would pay them pretty well or give them something to eat, they would pronounce peace. Your life's going to be great. It's going to be all okay. But if the person didn't have something to offer the prophet, he would say, well, it's not looking too good in your future. That's what the Lord says. In our situation, I'm the most obvious manifestation of this office. Of course, all of you have the scriptures. You can speak for God from the scriptures, but I do it most obviously and most publicly, right? That's my job. Now, I want to make a couple applications from that. First of all, I speak for God. Not Caleb the guy, but this office of pastor, which I occupy right now, which Joel Schultz occupied before me and which some guy will occupy after me someday, That office speaks for God. And so when I speak from my pastoral office, you have to hear those words in the same way you hear God's words. Hear them with the same authority as God's authority. This isn't just my opinion. It's God's word. Now, that doesn't mean you have to listen to me when I talk about sports or talk about the weather or talk about anything like that. But in this office, I speak for God. But... Because that office has that amazing privilege and power, often people abuse it. I know I've referenced this before, but if you haven't watched this movie on Netflix, you really should. American Gospel, Christ Alone. You should watch it and see the way that this office, my office of pastor, has been abused by people who stand up and say, everything's going to be good for you as long as you give me money, give me food, give me resources. People do it. It happens a lot. In fact, it happens in many of the biggest churches on this continent. It's not okay. But one more application for you. How we're going to try to make sure that that doesn't happen in our case. Because here's what I guess happened with those prophets. I don't think those prophets woke up one morning and said, you know what I'm going to do? Totally take advantage of everybody in the nation. They probably start with one slip up. Or one little addition to God's word. And no one called them on it. No one said that's not okay. That's not what the Lord says. No one tested their words against what God had already said and what was happening in the nation. So they just took it. I don't want that to happen to us. And so I need you to hold me accountable to what the, the Bible says the office of pastor does. And hold me, the sinful person, accountable to what the scriptures say. 
because I am just as temptable as any other person, just as capable of failure as any other person, just as easily led us astray as any other person. And even though I don't want to, and I will try my hardest not to, I might preach you something false. That's when I need you to know the scriptures and be challenging me with the scriptures and reading the scriptures that I'm preaching to you so that you know that what I'm saying comes from those scriptures. I know some of you have been reading these books of the Bible along with us as we've looked forward to each Sunday. You found that to be an amazing blessing to dig into those scriptures as we study them. But there's also a good side to this, and that is to understand what God says about the pastor's office. Uh, Scripturally speaking, I'm not an employee of Cross of Life. Like in our taxes, of course, we file me as an employee, but as far as the Bible is concerned, I'm not. The way that I got this position is the Holy Spirit called me through you, the church. And he called me here and said, you come here and preach to these people and I'll take care of the rest. I was going to come here whether you paid me, whether you liked me. I was going to come here because the Holy Spirit told me to. Now, the beauty of our relationship is that you love me enough and you love the Word of God enough that you have paid me in order to make this my full-time job. Otherwise, I'd have to get some other job and maybe spend about five to ten hours working on my sermon on Sunday, which would be fine, but I like the arrangement that we have. But this means something really cool. It means that I'm not dependent on you to pay me in order for me to survive or me to be doing God's will. Which means I can give you the whole word, all of it, even the uncomfortable parts, because I'm not worried that I need you to like me. And you might not like me. (laughs) And it's going to be a challenge, but it's truth. It's God's word. And that's what we're committed to at this church. So let's all be committed to it so that this doesn't happen to us. But let's back up a little bit to a 30,000-foot view of this. Who is responsible? The leaders and the preachers. And as you look across North America, you see corrupt leaders and corrupt preachers. And you think to yourself, maybe, like I do often, what on earth is my little life going to do to fix all these problems? Well, God gives you an answer. Chapter 5, he says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you be small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, They will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Specifically out of Bethlehem, a small town among the clans of Judah that basically no one knew, there was going to be a king who was going to be born, who was going to be the perfect ruler, who was going to bring peace to a nation, but who wasn't just going to be human, he was going to have origins from ancient times. Both born and eternal Son of God and Son of Man. And just as an aside, isn't it cool how 700 years before it actually happens, he is predicting that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem? If someone ever tells you that Jesus just looked at all the prophecies and learned them all and then tried to live up to as many of them as possible so people would believe he was the Messiah, this is a great place to send them. 
No one decides where they're born. But 700 years before it happened, God predicted where Jesus would be born. But the comfort for you is that in the face of any corrupt leader or any corrupt preacher, even me, if I ever become a corrupt preacher, you have a a king, a shepherd, who is watching over your soul. He is a ruler who is before me, before you, before this world from ancient times and yet also has become human being to be in your life and to take your sin and to give you his righteousness so that he can be the gate and so that he can also be, as he says himself, the good shepherd. The good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. You have that security, brothers and sisters, in the face of anyone who takes advantage of you. So that's who's responsible. Finally, what's going to happen? Uh, Now we get into a little bit of the historical context of the book of Micah. The book of Micah was, well, he's preaching, started a little bit before the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. So we're talking mid to late 8th century BC, 700s BC. 722 BC is the year that the northern kingdom fell to Assyria. And Micah kept preaching after that happened to Judah. Now, a couple years after that fall, where northern kingdom Israel was taken by Assyria, Assyria set its sights on Judah. Not particularly because they cared about Judah. In fact, what they wanted was Egypt. But we heard the story about how they came to right in front of Jerusalem to take it. Now Hezekiah went to the Lord and prayed to him and God answered his prayer, killing 185,000 of the Assyrians so that they would take their show somewhere else. In that context, we get the message of what God is going to do. And if you were to read chapter 6, you would see kind of a dialogue back and forth between God and his people. God would say, you know what happened to Assyria? That's going to happen, or happen to the northern kingdom of Israel. It's going to happen to you, Judah. What are you going to do about it? You, you have, I have a case against you of all the ways that you have disobeyed me, all the ways that you've been unjust with each other. Why should I save you? And Judah answers back, well, we're not really sure, but like, we'll do anything. We'll, we'll sacrifice even our children if that's what it takes. God says, no, no, here's what I need from you. I need you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I don't need sacrifices. I don't need offerings. I just need you to do this. Now, often when this verse is trotted out, people use it as sort of a definition for good religious behavior. You're a good Christian if you act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. But you have to ask yourself this question. How do you do that? Because just going home and saying, you know what, I'm going to be more just. That's only going to last for so long. I'm going to try to be really humble. That's only going to last for so long. The only way these things happen is if you remember the gospel. Because the only way you're going to be just is if you first think that there is no injustice happening against you. Right? If there's injustice happening against you, you're going to take that out first. You're going to work on that first. You're not going to feel like treating other people fairly if you're not being treated fairly. But what does the gospel say? God has treated you unfairly to your benefit. He has given you more than what you deserve. Everything that is unjust against you is going to be undone in the resurrection. So you're free. You're free to treat other people justly. What about mercy? You don't show mercy if you feel like no one is showing mercy to you. But as soon as you are shown mercy, you want to show that same love to other people. 
We have a saying in our society, pay it forward, right? As we see blessings, we are supposed to move those blessings on to the next person. That's what God's mercy does to us. And how about walking humbly? Humility only happens when you realize that God is God and you are not. And the way that God shows you that he is God and you are not is by showing you what he's willing to do for you to be your God. And when you see that, you'll walk humbly with him. See, what God says is, I want to see a life where you are not trying to get anything for yourself, but you realize it has all been fully given to you. You ever have that moment when you're driving in your car? Maybe you don't. You all live in the Mississauga, Toronto area. But that moment when you're driving in your car and you don't have to be anywhere really soon. You have like 45 minutes to make a half-hour drive. And so you just go the speed limit. Any of you do that? Maybe none of you do that. I do that sometimes, and it's the most relaxing thing. I don't need to weave in and out of traffic. I don't need to make sure that I merge in front of this guy. I don't have to worry about shifting lanes because that lane's going a little bit faster. I just cruise because it's all taken care of. It's going to be okay. That's the life God offers you. A life where you don't have to squeeze this world for everything that it's worth, but you can receive it all from God. And that will lead you to act this way. Now, once you believe that, you'll become far more aware of everything that's wrong with the world because you'll know the peace of God and you'll say, why doesn't everyone want this peace? Why is everyone fighting for themselves so much? Why are they fighting against each other, treating people like enemies and extracting value from each other? Why is that happening? Well, that's exactly what Israel says. They say, the faithful have been swept from the land. No one upright, well, not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar, like a, a thorny plant, right? The most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. The day God visits you has come. The day your watchmen sound the alarm. Now is the time of your confusion. Don't trust a neighbor, put no confidence in a friend. Even with the woman who lies in your embrace, guard the words of your lips. For a son dishonors his father, a daughter rises up against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. And some of you can relate to that. But once again, we get the answer. In the very next verse, But as for me, I watch and hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. And that's what Hezekiah did. In the face of an army that was ten times his size, which was easily going to wipe him out if they wanted to, he went to God and said, everything looks like a disaster, God, and I can't do anything to stop it, but you, God, are God. And I lay myself out humbly before you. Do what is good for me. Do what is good for our nation. Do what is good for your church. And would that we would do that also. That we would humbly come to our God in the face of all the terrible things that are happening in the world and repent and pray for his mercy. Trusting, just like Micah and that, that nation of Judah did, that God is unique. That he is a God who pardons sin and forgives transgressions. He does not stay angry forever, but delights to show mercy. That's the God that you have. And you know it worked. <laughs> right? When, when Hezekiah went to God, God answered his prayer. 
Judah should have been conquered in the year 701 BC when a siege was laid on Jerusalem by Assyria. But because of Hezekiah's prayer, God relented, God drove away Assyria, and Judah actually stood for another 115 or so years. It still was conquered. They still fell into sin. But God answers prayer. So let's pray. And understand, too, what the Apostle Paul understood in Romans 8. We consider our present sufferings to be not worth comparing the glory that will be revealed in us. And say with him, what then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Can government or corrupt powers or other nations, who can stand against us? No one, because he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all will graciously give us all things along with him. And God be praised for that. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, come to us in our time of need. As your church is threatened, as peace in the world is threatened, as people look at each other as enemies, not as friends, as people look to extract value from each other, come and save us from ourselves. Show mercy on this nation. Show mercy on the people of other nations. Show mercy on our church. We know that only you can do it, and that's why we ask you in your name. Amen.